Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. Psychologist, researcher, and executive Cassandra Veeton and I dialogue about a wide range of interventions that can shift the current mental health crisis into a mental health renaissance. Cassie's many years of offering patients empirically-based mind-body tools for sustainable transformation has taken place at several renowned academic medical institutions and greatly contributed to psychology's integration of embodied, spiritually-oriented interventions for human flourishing. And those include meditation, qigong, tai chi, being in nature, adding ritual, spiritual exploration, and most recently, psychedelics. This is a jam-packed episode full of practical information for health professionals seeking easy ways to facilitate patient well-being and flourishing. Cassie, thank you so much for agreeing to have a conversation with me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you gave this absolutely fantastic TED Talk. I'm not flattering you. It was so on point for everything I think you and I have been doing in our work with patients for years. You know, my listening audience likes to know who I'm talking to. And you have such an interesting history professionally. So can you just say a little bit about your journey and how you landed where you are now? Sure. Thanks, Lisa. And it's been great to kind of work in parallel with you over so many years now and to watch where you're going and the work that you've been doing. My background, I talk a little bit about it in the TEDx talk. I was raised by a scientist on the one hand, my dad, biologist, someone who up until just very recently taught biochemistry and helped to develop the medical school at one of the University of California's. So that was a huge influence in my life, like that scientific perspective. And we used to do things like go get water from the pond and put it under microscopes, look through telescopes at night. And so there was this real like awe and wonder in exploring the natural world. And then my mom was a high school counselor and a therapist throughout my life. They divorced when I was about nine and they both remarried people who were very well matched for them. So I really feel like I have four parents, but it did kind of leave in me this sort of, okay, one perspective is this very scientific, beautiful, yet materialistic and reductionistic perspective, while the other is this very inner world, interiority and subjectivity and symbolism, feminist spirituality. And so I really wove those two things together throughout my career. Now, when I was a teenager, like many members of my family and my ancestry, I started to have really, really big emotions and really distressing kinds of thinking patterns went into sort of a dark place. Lots of self-criticism, lots of insecurity, lots of worry and anxiety and depressive thinking. I mean, at the same time, I was playing soccer. I was in the choir. I really loved academics and school and things like that. It was more like interpersonally and behaviorally. I was, oh my God, I don't know what to do. 
It was internal mental narrative that was just so difficult to live with. Shortly after I started feeling that way, I found drugs and alcohol. Wow, this really works. (laughs) You know, really works to silence that insecurity and those inner kind of turmoil and I think that's really what I believe about risk for addiction is that people have two things. One is they have that hyper self-criticism or overly active minds and really big reactivity and feelings. And also for those people, it just happens to work particularly well to have these chemicals come in and silence the inner voice. Unfortunately, though, alcohol and drugs are not a sustainable solution. They're addictive and toxic and make bad things happen. And so relatively quickly, I shot to the bottom and got clean and sober when I was like 17 and started to pursue how do we help people who experience these kinds of things? And so went to school for psychology, got captivated by mindfulness and meditation because it was the first time I had ever heard anyone say, hey, this is the nature of life is that life is kind of suffering. There's a lot of suffering. And when you get super attached to things you don't want not happening and things you do want to happen, that causes a lot of suffering. And when I started to learn about Buddhism, I was like, that is true. So I went to the California Institute of Integral Studies that brought together Eastern philosophy, Buddhist psychology, Western psychology, and some, you know, indigenous wisdom and women's spirituality. It was the perfect place for me to go. I loved it so much. I pursued becoming a therapist. As I got almost done with my training, I was like, wait a second, if I'm a therapist, I'm only going to be able to help one person at a time, which is a big deal. Like, I don't mean to put down therapists by any means, because helping one person at a time is really the only way it ever happens. But in my mind at the time, I was kind of with hubris, like, I want to help thousands of people and millions of people. And I think that science gene sort of woke up in me. And so I ended up going to UC San Francisco and doing my pre-doctoral and postdoctoral training in a very scientific, biological, uh, it was in the Department of Neurology on a study on behavioral genetics of addictions. I did that for about 10 years. And by the time I got almost to the end of that training, I was like, okay, this is not just all about the body and the material world. Like I cannot leave behind my interest in subjectivity and interiority and spirituality. So I wanted to find a way to blend the two. And I found the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I ended up being there for 18 years. And this is a research institute that is absolutely dedicated to bridging science and spirituality. So that was a huge, amazing part of my life. I ended up being president and CEO. And after about 18 years there, my daughter graduated from high school and went to college. And I was like, I think I have another chapter. I really want to move out of this very insular field and see, again, what can we do in the mainstream? So now I've landed at UC San Diego at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, the Center for Mindfulness, and the Psychedelics and Health Research Initiative. And so this combination of mindfulness, imagination, and psychedelics is the culmination of everything that I've been working towards. And I'm just having a wonderful time here. So that's the long version of my background. It's so beautiful. Uh, As my mother once said to me, the world finally caught up to you. (laughs) I too gave up drugs and alcohol at 15 and had already tried all kinds of yoga, meditation, but I just went whole hog into that. And 
when we first met, you and I were both delivering mindfulness-based interventions to people with hardcore addiction. Mm-hmm. And I remember the two of us saying to each other, yeah, Qigong works really well for them when no one was doing that. What I love so much about your talk is you connected two threads that have been quite bothersome for me, certainly since the pandemic. This emphasis on a mental health crisis is very disturbing for me Mm -hmm. because I have found that they're lumping things under the umbrella of mental health problems that I actually don't think are. You said Let's look at, a. you called it a mental health renaissance. And then you made a beeline for the difference between mental health issues and well-being. And you so beautifully explained the difference between thinking of mental health as something that happens in a very particular way, and instead looking at this spectrum of mental health disorders, but also looking at a spectrum of well-being and distress. This has been a real game changer in my thinking. And in addition to being at UC San Diego, I also have been directing the John W. Brick Mental Health Foundation, which was founded by Victor and Lynn Brick, who are owners of Ohana Growth Partners, which own about 80 Planet Fitness gyms. And so they are both fitness pioneers and health and well-being pioneers. And Victor's brother, John, suffered from schizophrenia for his entire life and eventually died of complications of schizophrenia. And what Victor and Lynn noticed was that throughout his entire life, all of his treatment, he never was once offered a whole person plan. It was all sort of very old school psychotherapy, medication, institutionalization over and over and over again, which all is necessary sometimes. And I have done all three. I really am grateful for the existence of these things and think they should be accessible to everyone with or without insurance. However, there's so much more to mental health and well-being than that crisis care, that stabilization. And one of the things I said in the talk was stabilization is not the end, it's the beginning. So yeah, we get people stabilized, but then what do we do? We really need to change the way we think about mental health. One of the ways we have thought about it in the past is that some people have mental health problems and some people don't. And those people that have them are abnormal and we need to get them back to being normal. And we've used a real disease model, like it's just like a disease, we're going to treat it. Now that disease model was super helpful because before the disease model of mental health and illness, it was thought of as a character flaw or a moral weakness or people just not being motivated or trying hard enough. So moving into like, hey, actually, this is a brain disorder it's not a moral weakness was a good thing. And let's start to look at targets for drugs and treat it like any other illness and cover it by insurance. That was all good, but I think it has been too narrow of a focus. So now only in the brain and only this very small proportion of the population have Mm -hmm. these diseases. They can be cured if we can just surgically extract that part of their brain or deactivate it. This is probably not true. So the new way of looking at it is that mental illness is on a spectrum, and I prefer to think of it as mental health symptoms on a spectrum, from high symptoms to low symptoms. But we all live on that spectrum. It's not like there are special people who have mental health symptoms. We all live on that spectrum, whether it's a tendency to have very few symptoms 
to a tendency to have a lot of symptoms, but most of us live somewhere in the middle where we have anxiety sometimes or anxious thoughts and nervousness and you know, depressive ways of being, substance abuse, anger, and disengagement. And that's not the only spectrum, though, because there's a different spectrum. So we think about those symptoms on the horizontal spectrum from high to low, but there's a different spectrum of well-being. And that's, you could say, on the vertical spectrum, where the highest part of that spectrum is thriving, connection, engagement with life, relationships, purpose, meaning, hope, creativity, approaching life with a sense of wonder and humility and gratitude and forgiveness. Now you can do all those things and have mental health symptoms. You can do all of those things and have even a high level of mental health symptoms if you're engaging in a variety of practices that allow you to learn to navigate the symptoms. On the other hand, at the bottom of that vertical spectrum is loneliness, disengagement, alienation, no sense of purpose, no real sense of direction or meaning, not feeling connected to anyone or anything, superficiality, prioritizing money, acquisition, things over love, beauty, justice, peace. These are all not traditionally thought of as mental health problems, but they are a form of languishing. So at the top, you have flourishing. At the bottom, you have languishing. And even people without conventional mental health symptoms can be languishing. And I think a lot of our society is. And so we've got to address both. What are some methods that we can use to help people move up and down the scale of symptoms, hopefully reducing their symptoms, but also regardless of symptoms, how can we help people move up the scale towards flourishing, even in the face of symptoms? So that's that's the kind of one aspect of the mental health renaissance or the new way of looking at it. I really love this framing because it points to what I feel has been a blind spot or a major deficit in our framing of psychology in general, at least in the West. Many of the things you described in the category of languishing are actually characteristics of individuals who live in six societies and certainly live in a cultural milieu in which the internal world and the collective world of connection, meaning, ritual, some sense of having a place in your community and the community being important, maybe more important than you, this is all missing for us. A lot of what people are pointing to as mental health issues, at least for me, seems like a tremendous deficit in the way we're conducting our societal values at this point. Yeah, mental health and well-being is not above the neck. It's in the whole body. And there are so many hormones and gut health and movement and nutrition and all of the things we do with our whole bodies feed into our mental health, but it goes far beyond that. It's the settings we live in. It's in our, our environments, our neighborhoods, our communities, our world. When our neighborhoods and communities are not well, and our world is actually not well environmentally, you know, there's a lot of people beginning to look at the connection between climate change and mental health, social justice, and mental well-being, especially for Black and Indigenous people of color living in a world of oppression and racism throughout their lifetimes without a sense of safety, with a constant undercurrent of threat, 
that is not them having a mental health issue. That is society being not well. And so you really can't separate the mental well-being of individuals from the mental well-being of society. And yet our profession has actually done this. The pathologizing of, you know, even recent movements towards, let's call it psychological neurodiversity is great. You know, there's a little bit of movement to saying, okay, maybe not every child should be able to sit at a desk for six and a half hours a day inside. Maybe that's not all them. Maybe that's a crazy idea. And we know for sure that not all kids are meant to do that. Another big movement in the mental health renaissance or the mental well-being renaissance is can we start thinking about these things as psychological neurodiversity, that there are various strengths and there are tendencies that people have. And if we can create environments that support that. Now, this is not romanticizing mental health and well-being. There are people who have mental health disorders, but the vast majority of people, you can make a huge difference by changing the amount that they move how they eat, what the activities are of each day, spending time in nature, spending time with animals, focusing on purpose and meaning, adding creativity and play and more spiritual practices, all meditation and contemplation, rest and rejuvenation. That should be the prescription for most people and even people who are facing severe mental health challenges. If we were to utilize all those tools at our disposal, it's much more likely they'd be able to navigate the symptoms that they have. Absolutely. For them, mostly. In some ways, you get a bigger bang for the buck. You know, they're having active psychosis, they're having active suicidal ideation. And what you do is you start to look for other kinds of things, something weirdly as simple as intensely low cholesterol, particularly young people, will lead them to have suicidal ideation. And we know this. The research is done by psychiatrists and medical professionals. It still takes time for them to say, please test them, test their cholesterol level, because if you just raise it, they actually get better. Even my holistic psychology training did not include anything about nutrition or exercise or anything like that. The John W. Brick Foundation, for example, just did a big study of the last 30 years of research on exercise and mental health, looking at almost every single article that was published. And what we found through that, at this point, we know for sure that someone who has depression and to just a slightly lesser extent, but still pretty clearly anxiety, exercise for 20 to 30 minutes a day, four to five times a week at a higher level of intensity is superior to antidepressants. And so at this point, we would almost say that not prescribing exercise, and when I say prescribing, I don't mean you should exercise. I mean, linking them up with someone like a physical therapist or a fitness professional to actually train them in exercise, graduating over time in intensity and length is almost malpractice. And so we are going to find over the next several years, and this is what does excite me about the mental health renaissance, is we are going to find so much help for so many people if we can implement some of these very basic techniques. And so one of the things the Brick Foundation is doing is 
developing a training for fitness professionals around the world who work at clubs so that they can be mental health certified. And so therapists and psychiatrists will be able to refer people to like go down to your local Planet Fitness. It is literally $10 a month. Work with a trainer who is mental health certified while you're in therapy with me. These are the kinds of things that need to happen in the coming years. And I think they will. And so that's going to be pretty exciting. It's wonderful. The prescription I'm immediately going to write for a new patient is 20 minutes of exercise. And we have a whole slew of studies to show exercise can mean so many things and it still works. Walk every day. You don't need a gym to get yourself out and walk every day. It yeah. can mean working in your garden for 30 minutes it can mean a lot of things. It's movement. Actually, the top two exercise methods that reduced depression symptoms the most were cycling and sports because they include being outdoors, being in the sunshine, and in sports, being with other people. So they combine some of the other things we know were. I want to be clear. I don't think these things are easy. You know, a lot of people who feel depressed would have trouble making it to the mailbox. It's not going to be about giving people a list of New Year's resolutions that they should follow. It's going to be about actually treating them. But if you look at the relative cost of some of these more holistic interventions, to let's say one visit to an emergency room with a panic attack or one night or two nights in a hospital with a massive depressive episode costs as much as a year of five of these treatments. So at the Center for Mindfulness at UCSD, unfortunately, there's still no insurance coverage for mindfulness-based stress reduction, despite thousands of articles showing reductions in depression, anxiety, and a multitude of other ailments, pain, that needs to change immediately. It's so inexpensive in comparison to not treating it. You and I have been beating this drum for how many years? <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I really did try to frame the TEDx talk in the positive because we can sit around and complain about how things are forever. And we know that actually doesn't change the world. So what I try to lead with is this is incredibly exciting that we have now hundreds of practices and interventions that are inexpensive, that often don't even require a trained professional, or at least a paraprofessional can do it or a peer can do it. They can happen in neighborhoods, they can happen at home. And it really requires, though, that we shift the societal thinking about mental health and well-being, that we know it's relevant to every single person, not just a few poor souls who have a problem, that we train our professionals to embrace it, not as luxurious kind of sprinkles on top of the treatment Sunday, but as the actual bowl that's holding the Sunday, like this is foundational stuff. You also had this very beautiful diagram, which visually showed so many of the things that you've already said. The formula is multi-pronged and in the eight prongs, only one of them is crisis intervention, medical intervention, and counseling treatment. We call it the ecosystem of mental health and well-being. And it's a wheel with the hub in the middle being thriving, and then the spokes going out to all the things we've been talking about, exercise, nutrition, meditation and contemplation, having a sense of service and purpose, uh, spirituality and meaning. The reason we call it an ecosystem is they all work together. They interact with each other to create an environment that is conducive to mental well-being. 
it can be a little overwhelming when we first look at it. And by the way, if you're listening, you can go to johnwbrickfoundation.org slash build, B-U-I-L-D. It'll help you build your own ecosystem of mental health. But what I like to tell patients when I'm working with them on this is number one, these can be very short practices. This could be walking for five minutes. This could be adding one vegetable to your meal, not taking away anything, just adding it doing a reflection on gratitude when you wake up for five minutes. And if you do three to five of them every day, your life will begin to elevate in that vertical spectrum of mental well-being, and it will probably affect your symptoms too. One of my favorites, which I always recommend, is being of service. In my experience, one of the best remedies for depression and anxiety is shifting the focus outside of one's own self-absorption, even if it's self-absorption on suffering. Yep. When focus becomes other-centered, what shows up is the richness of human experience. Also for me is something basically missing in the prescription pad. You are part of a world and your thriving, your mental, emotional, physical well-being has so much to do with how you gift yourself in this world, how you participate in this world. And it really is an antidote for so many of the symptoms and disorders that we list on our insurance forms. Yeah, it's so true. And in a way, it's flipping Maslow's hierarchy on its head. We've all been taught so much that, you know, first we've got to take care of the basic levels of functioning, and then we've got to get rid of all of our mental health symptoms, and then we've got to, you know, get a job. And at the very top, we can do these self-actualization needs. And there's some truth to that, but there's just as much truth in the idea that even someone who's experiencing quite a bit of distress and maybe even having trouble functioning, you know, you might think, well, they shouldn't try to be of service or volunteer until way down the road, until they have all their ducks in a row. But the truth is they can do one hour of volunteering at a local place for the shelterless or go help in a soup kitchen or go pick up trash along the beach or at a park. And that feeling of making a contribution is one of the most antidepressant feelings there is. That's just such an important part of what we're calling the prescription. And only because you now are working a research environment, which like so many of our contemplative research environments have shifted over to psychedelics. I will proceed my question about this by saying I think the conversation you and I have been having so far is a very good case for why they are not necessary. One of the things that isn't listed necessarily on the eight-pronged star ecosystem, but which actually is a, at least in my life, awe is something that Mm -hmm. can arise in any one of these prongs. At this point, people are touting psychedelics because they have a tendency maybe for some people to induce experiences of awe, certainly psilocybin. Mm -hmm. Here you are in the middle of it. What's your take on it? I would probably take a slightly different perspective than you, just in the sense that I do think it's promising and I do think it's feasible. 
I think that right now, gold rush of psychedelics that's happening is number one, perhaps a bit overly simplified and overstated. And number two, possibly not safe and ethical the way it's happening. We've gone from having it be illegal to people literally being able to have it mailed to their house and not, you know, do some session at home and then have some online app to help them integrate, which I worry about. There's two aspects, right? So psychedelics are going to have a biological aspect, which there are some evidence, there is some evidence coming to light over time that that just the biological action of psychedelics is doing something fascinating in the brain in terms of brain activation, integration, highly accelerated neuroplasticity, actually growing dendritic spines. I mean, neurogenesis based on these things. And that's worth pursuing in my mind. Second, though, the subjective experience is what you're speaking to. And, you know, there have been so many both anecdotes and emerging studies that are showing that as people have subjective experiences that temporarily deactivate the sense of the separate self, they temporarily allow people to feel like the boundaries of their ego are completely dissolved and they feel one with everything. Like you said, a sense of awe and wonder at the magic and beauty and majesty and richness and diversity of life incredible peak experiences that seem to be reliably produced with specific preparation and set and setting. You know, people in the Johns Hopkins experiment saying after years, this is still one of the top five experiences of their entire lifetime. Sometimes I think about it as a top down and bottom up. So top down is what we've been talking about, all the different ways that you can teach yourself or learn or practice like learning a new language or learning to be have a different way of living. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of habit change. But then there are bottom up where you have experiences that fundamentally change the way you view yourself in the world, or you have experiences that without any doubt and with utter certainty show that I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. Those are always changing, but I am the one who is aware of those thoughts and feelings and they move like weather patterns through my being. And just getting that space is one of the active ingredients in both psychedelics probably and mindfulness as we know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's amazing. That's incredible. And that that requires, I think, further investigation and you know, immediate compassionate use for people who are dealing with massive amounts of distress and trauma and people, you know, facing death and things like that. So I have a lot of healthy skepticism. Yeah, I think that's probably good. Yeah, especially as corporations begin to come in and try to, you know, use a drug development model where they're like, you know, we're going to buy this, we're going to own it, we're going to extract the active ingredient, we're going to make a lot of money on it, which is just like, oh, God, do we have to go through that again? seems antithetical to the actual experience and purpose of psychedelics. (laughs) Even if I wanted to refer a patient for this treatment, I can't. I think the likelihood is, is that, or, or the current thinking is that there's this temporary elevation of neuroplasticity, having insights during that neuroplasticity and then reconsolidating afterwards 
makes it so that you can integrate those insights in ways that don't happen during typical learning, which is a very slow neuroplasticity. Thank goodness, because we wouldn't want to be blown away by every experience of our lives. I think there is the potential for something like PTSD in reverse. One very traumatic experience can change someone's psychology and brain for the rest of their lives and nervous system. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, I think one tremendously powerfully life-changing mystical experience can change people for life. So, you know, there need to be practices to integrate that. And there is a lot of things that happen after a traumatic experience that reinforce the trauma. In the same way, we need to have a lot of experiences that reinforce powerfully positive experience. The basis of my personal practice is mindfulness. And I do think that learning to observe experience as temporary and, as I said, weather patterns moving through a larger container of being is still to me, I'm just speaking personally, not necessarily scientifically, is still the ground of almost any other practice or any other kind of pursuit. You can see people who don't have that and who use psychedelics, who all they want to do is keep going back and using it again and again and again. Whereas I think if you come in with a mindful perspective and you say, oh, wow, that experience taught me something huge, I'm going to spend the next 10 years integrating that. That's a different way of looking at it. And that's true for other majorly transformative experiences people have had with, without psychedelics. Typically, it comes unbidden. Typically, it's not what somebody's planning is to completely shift their entire worldview. It hits people like a lightning strike or something, whether it's during a, a very positive experience or whether more often it's during a very negative experience where people have had some major deconstruction or dissolution. They've lost a loved one. They've had a near-death experience. They have a divorce. They hit bottom with an addiction it's almost like they get completely disintegrated. And then when they come back to a more stabilized place, they reassemble themselves. And that reassembly is an opportunity to reassemble themselves in a different way. And that's where a lot of people say, look, I'm going to reassemble myself so that my number one orienting principle is love and meaning instead of accumulation and accolades and all that stuff. I'm going to want to make a difference in the world. I want to help other people or I just want to live my life in a way that is honest and genuine and authentic. Those transformative experiences have happened through millennia and we just, there hasn't been a strong science of them. And so a whole thread of my scientific career and the Institute of Noetic Sciences has been looking into those and seeing, is it possible to provide the conditions that make those more likely? And only one of those conditions might be psychedelics with the right set and setting, but there are hundreds of other conditions, you know, holotropic breath work and meditation and spiritual practice, qigong, tai chi, prayer, you know, travel, being in nature, there's hundreds of them. We know some of the things that make those experiences more likely to cause positive change, having a sense of community, having an actual community that you connect with, having a daily mind-body practice that helps to integrate mind and body and spirit because we tend to, even when we have a powerful experience, we tend to regress back to the pre-existing categories and conditioning and programming. So we're programmed to forget. And so we have to reprogram ourselves to remember who we are, why we're here. And that reprogramming takes a lot. Having things in your environment, a little Buddha on your dashboard, which I used to think was superficial and 
spiritual materialism. And now I'm like, oh no, those are there to help you remember who the heck you are and why you're here. And even something as mundane can be the most transformative experience. Like for instance, in homage to my dear friend, Judd Brewer, the first time a longtime smoker actually just fully attends to the taste of mm -hmm. their cigarette and they have this massive full body disgust reaction mm. that is enough to make them never smoke again yeah just bringing awareness is like such a huge important first step and that's really what the 12 step programs discovered and that's what that first step that people talk about they call it powerlessness and acceptance, but really what it means is becoming 1 million percent aware of, oh my God, this is really not working. And I cannot get myself out of it by thinking about it. And that's the moment of change. And that's the moment of change for a lot of other things besides addiction. Like this is not, this is not working and I don't know how to get out of it. And I need to learn more or connect with a teacher, connect with a community, find a new narrative. And that sends people into this seeking mode. And then eventually they find some practice or set of practices that helps them begin to live into this new way of being. And it ripples out from there. Yeah, I've been really happy to be able to do that work on the science of transformation. I do workshops still where I teach what we've learned about the art and science of transformation um, at Esalen and at other retreat centers. And that's really fun work. I mean, I spend most of my time in um, science and uh, all of that kind of stuff, but it's really wonderful to still have opportunities here and there to just do the depth transformative work with people. And we, we're so fortunate, honestly, to have had you doing this work mm. at such a high level for so long. I know you're not a household name, but there's so many things in the modern psychology world that you've contributed to in such mm -hmm. a big way, not just contemplation, but embodiment, the idea that there are spiritual experiences and these spiritual experiences can be a focal point for psychological growth. Still have a long way to go. But it's exciting. Now we have a lot of evidence. There is an increasing amount of openness among people. And I certainly have moved into a place where I feel less defensive about it and more excited about it. Let me share with you these awesome things that are happening. And even when I find myself getting in fighter mode about it, like, I'm going to have to prove this. Chief of psychiatry, you know, I'll run into and I'll be starting my big round of making a case for mindfulness or whatever. And they're like, oh no, I'm totally in. I get it. What program do you want to do? And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Wonderful. If you had a wish, something that could be either delivered through the NIH that would really help your research move forward even faster, what would it be? Well, I have a couple of dreams. There is not yet an integrative mental health center at any major university in the country. And so I'm working on trying to develop an integrative mental health center at UCSD. 
there are integrative mental health people and professionals at universities, but I would like to see a real center of excellence around it so that we could actually demonstrate very clearly, like, here are the people who didn't get it. Here are the people who did get it. This is the actual benefit. And these are the actual cost savings. So we could try to accelerate the integration of these things across mainstream culture. That's one. The other is I've been working really hard on an initiative to provide all mental health professionals with very basic training in spirituality and consciousness and these aspects of life that most mental health professionals are taught not to address as much as they are addressing other things. That's what I'm hoping that we can get that out there soon so that every single mental health professional, it just becomes the norm to ask people about their spiritual and religious strengths and experiences and backgrounds and practices and how they view the world, how they view themselves, what they hold sacred. There's been a hesitancy to bring this into mental health professions because it kind of smacks of religion or mysticism and people don't want to contaminate the evidence-based practice, but it actually is evidence-based. It's, you know, there is tons of evidence for integrating these aspects of people's lives into their treatment and having it significantly be very much related to everything from lowered suicide rates to higher coping. That's another dream that I'm working hard on. So those are two things that are a little nerdy and obscure, but that's those are some things I'd like. And I guess the third would be insurance coverage. If we could just get all this stuff covered by insurance, if you've got a patient who's willing to do Qigong every morning, please don't make them pay for it. Cover the mindfulness training, cover all the fitness training. It's so much cheaper. One night in a hospital would pay for all of those practices for an entire year for one person. So I just hope that the Medicare and insurance companies can start to understand that it's a gift to them for the patient to even be willing to do it financially. Kaiser Permanente, my hat is off to them. They are offering Qigong, Tai Chi, yoga for free. So I don't think your wish list is weird in any way because <laughs> these are the things I do every day. And I also know that the vast majority of mental health professionals are only delivering CBT. I hope you get your wishes. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.